Amen. Be sure and uh, stop by in between services to thank Jonathan for being here with us, leading us in a, a wonderful time of worship this morning. Many years ago, I was uh, on a mission trip to Mexico City, and it was over Christmas, and it was during their Three Kings celebration. They were having a celebration throughout the city. They were, uh, as we were walking through the main part of the city, there were people all over dressed up like the three kings. And there were booths set up all over the place with people selling a religious merchandise. And I'll never forget stopping at a booth with a, a translator, of course, I needed that, and was talking with the salesman who was selling crosses. And I was looking them over. I was asking him questions through the translator about the celebration. And shortly into that conversation, I discovered that though this man knew a little bit about the celebration of the three kings, he had little knowledge about the Christmas story. And when I talked to him about the crosses he was selling, he knew even less. So I got to share Christ with the man selling crosses on that day. But I, I found as the day went on, there were lots of people taking part in this religious celebration who knew very little of the gospel message. And that's not just true in Mexico City, is it? That's true here. We, we see that at Christmas and especially at, at during Easter, though some may be familiar with the story of Jesus' birth in a barn in Bethlehem and may know details about Jesus' life and death and resurrection. There are many in our world today who are unaware of what Scripture teaches when it comes to the reason Christ came, the reason He lived, the reason He died, and the significance of His resurrection. We focused on the significance of His coming, you remember, in December, his birth, around Christmas, and we really focus in on the significance of what Christ accomplished during his life, death, and resurrection each time we gather together in what is said from God's Word and what is sung during our song service, right? But for the next few weeks, we are really going to focus in on the significance of this event at Calvary when Christ laid his life down, we're also going to talk about the significance of his burial and his resurrection days later. This is one of the major focuses of each of the gospel writers. This account, of course, is found in, in all four gospel books in the New Testament. Last year at Easter, we focused in on Matthew's Easter story. So for the next four weeks, we are going to focus in on the next book over, Mark's. Easter story. If you have your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 15. Mark 15. Like I said earlier in the service, we're taking a brief break again from our series in Hebrews. And for the next four weeks, we're going to be studying Mark's account of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection in a series I've entitled Mark's Easter Story. And today, we're going to begin our series 
with the end of Christ's earthly life. So for the sake of time, we're not going to camp out in the details leading to his crucifixion. Lord willing, I'll have an opportunity to preach through Mark one of these days. But I only have a few weeks. I've only allowed a few weeks for this study. So we're going to jump right in to the crucifixion in Mark 15. We're going to begin in verse 22. A lot has happened. The betrayal of Jesus by Judas took place in Mark 14, 43 through 46. He betrayed him with a kiss. Jesus is arrested, tried before the Jews in Mark 14, 53 through 65. Peter denies knowing Jesus, Mark 14, 66 through 72. He is delivered to Pilate at the beginning of Mark 15. He's tried before Pilate in Mark 15, 1 through 5. Pilate tries to get out of crucifying Jesus by appealing to what was customary. He allows for them to free one prisoner, thinking surely they'll choose this man, Jesus. Instead, the religious leaders stir up the crowd and lead them to free a murderer by the name of Barabbas. That takes place in Mark chapter 15, verses 6 through 15. Pilate then asked what to do with Jesus, and they shouted, crucify him and as Jesus is being led away we are told that the soldiers mocked Jesus they clothed him with purple put a crown of thorns on his head they mockingly saluted him they said hail king of the Jews they also struck him and spit on him jokingly kneeled before him then they led him away to be crucified we are then in Mark's account introduced to a man named Simon of Cyrene who helps carry the cross for Jesus. And as all of these things are happening, an important question that needs to be answered by us is this. Where is God the Father in all of this? Why is he allowing for this to happen? Why is he allowing for Jesus, his son, his only son, to be betrayed and arrested? and denied, and tried, and mocked, and beaten, and condemned? Why is he allowing for his son to be treated in this horrible way? It's blasphemy, is it not? How can the father hold back when his beloved son, in whom he is well pleased, is being treated in this horrible way? He is clear in his word that the penalty for blasphemy is death. Leviticus 24, 16 says, Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. This is blasphemy to the greatest degree. So what is God doing? It appears as if he's doing nothing. But what we're going to see this morning is through the wicked acts of these wicked men, God accomplishes his greatest work. There's the main point right there. I want to show you this. In the Savior's suffering, Pilate's sarcasm and the mocking participants. There's your points there. First, notice God's great work through the Savior's suffering. Look at verses 22 through 25. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. 
First, we're told that, that when they led Christ away to be crucified, they brought him to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Golgotha is the Aramaic word in Latin. It's translated Calvary, okay? So the Latin word for Golgotha is Calvary, in case you didn't know. In verse 23, we're told that they offered him wine mixed with myrrh. This was the one act of mercy that the Romans provided. They showed a tiny shred of human compassion by providing this mild sedative to help ease the agonizing pain that one would endure through crucifixion. But notice Christ refuses it. In Matthew 27, we're told he tasted it but did not drink it. He refused it. Instead, Christ would drink of another cup. We learn of in Gethsemane, right? The cup of the Father's wrath in full, in our place, with full awareness and consciousness. In verse 24, we are told they crucified him. A lot is written outside of Scripture on the horrors of crucifixion. The gospel writers do not go into so much detail on that because, believe it or not, the details of what Christ endured physically is secondary in this story. The shame of the cross and what Christ endured in being betrayed and rejected by his own, what he endured spiritually at the hands of the Father, what he accomplished spiritually on our behalf to save us is what is primary here. That's what's primarily focused on. But death by crucifixion was the most painful and shameful way to die. Though crucifixion was not invented by the Romans, it is said that they are the ones who perfected the craft, the practice. When, they, when, when crucifying a condemned criminal, they would strip them naked and take these nails the, the size of railroad spikes and they would drive them through the wrist and the feet of those being put to death. They would raise them up for all to see, and the weight of the body would hang on the cross and would restrict the lungs, driving the lungs to empty, forcing the person to push up with their feet, which was extremely painful, to get their breath, and they would eventually tire and suffocate. Or in the case of these being crucified before Passover minus Jesus, they would break their legs to speed the process along. Horrible way to die. And for those of you all who are interested, I brought something with me this morning. It's actually in the foyer right now. It's an article from the Journal of American Medical, uh, the Journal of the American Medical Association. It was published in 1986. It's written by a doctor who was a Christian who wrote about the physical agony of the cross. You can take it with you, read it if you're interested. I read it this morning. Very, very good from a medical standpoint of what Christ had to endure. And he also offers up solid evidence that Jesus was dead when they took him off the cross. Those of y'all that know some of the, the uh, <clears throat> false views about the resurrection, those who try to explain it away, they explain what's called the swoon theory that Jesus passed out on the cross and that he was revived in the tomb and he snuck out somehow using his ninja skills and uh, that's how the tomb is empty. It's pretty ridiculous, but you can read this article and that'll help you see he was dead when they took him off the cross. Good, good, good article, so take one with you if you'd like. It was a painful and shameful way to die. We're told that, that after they crucify him, they divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. 
And it was the third hour when they crucified him. So they, they crucified Christ at this time. It's about nine in the morning. And, and Mark tells us that the Roman soldiers, while Christ was dying at Calvary, divided up his garments. And I read that one reason they might have done this was for compensation for being a part of the execution squad. They would have been there all day. It was a gruesome job. So they rolled the dice, cast lots to decide who gets what. It's a pitiful scene. Christ is suffering. He is enduring the scorn and shame of the cross. And while this is happening, Roman soldiers are gambling for his garments. And again, the question needs to be asked, where is God? What is he doing? Why is he not responding to his son? Well, that's where a good knowledge of what Scripture teaches comes in handy. The events leading up to his death and Christ's crucifixion at Calvary, you'll find when you study the Scriptures, it all happens in accordance with God's plan. There is a ton of Scripture being fulfilled in the events surrounding Christ's death at Calvary. I mean, Jesus' death here, recorded in Mark 15, fulfills massive amounts of prophecy. Look at this quote by John MacArthur. He said this, Every Old Testament picture of the final sacrifice, every type, every prophecy about the one who would die, it's all resolved here in Jesus Christ. So just the mention of Jesus' death here fulfills massive amounts of prophecy. First look at verse 20. Mark says, And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him away to be crucified. Now, notice that phrase, they led him out. They led him out to crucify him. They led him away. Think about that phrase for a moment. That is a short, seemingly insignificant statement, isn't it? But it's extremely important. You see, history tells us that because of the scourging and the beating that many took, and because they were paralyzed by fear because of the cross, it was not uncommon for some to be carted and carried away to crucifixion. That was common. It happened often. But notice, Jesus wasn't drugged. He wasn't driven. He was led. This means he didn't go against his will, but he went without resistance. Folks, that is extremely important. That fulfills Scripture. Isaiah says in Isaiah 53, 7, hundreds of years before this event, he says he was led as a lamb to the slaughter. Through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Isaiah says that when the Messiah goes to his death, he will not be driven, he will not be drugged, he will not be forced against his will, but will be led... Same word, led, like a lamb, to the slaughter. Listen to verse 20 and verse 22. They led him out to crucify him, verse 22. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. Now listen to John 19, verse 17. You're going to read about these accounts throughout this month. And he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Notice the phrase, led him out. He went out. That tells us where Golgotha was. Where was it? It was out. It was, it was out of the city. 
When Christ was crucified, he was crucified outside of Jerusalem. You see, the Romans had a law that no one could be crucified within the city limits, within the boundary of the city. So those being crucified were led out of the city. Now think about this. Though the Jewish people had tried on several occasions to kill Jesus inside the city, they were not able. Why? Because Scripture is clear that His sacrifice had to be offered outside the city. You see, all throughout the Old Testament, the offerings that were offered, they were pictures of Christ. And one type of offering was what was called the sin offering. In Exodus 29, 14, we're told this, But the flesh of the bull and its skin and its dung you shall burn with fire outside the camp. It is a sin offering. See, sin offerings were to be offered outside the camp. We're also told this in Leviticus 4.12. And in Leviticus 16.27, we're told repeatedly sin offerings are to be taken outside the camp. They're to be taken and offered out of the camp of Israel. Let me ask you, who is the ultimate sin offering? Jesus, right? Where then did Jesus need to be taken to atone for sins? Outside the camp, outside the gate, outside the city, outside Jerusalem. Look at Hebrews 13, 11 through 12 up on the screen here. We're going to be in Hebrews 13 shortly. I was studying it last week. The author of Hebrews says, For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places, this is during the Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. That's clearly stated right there, isn't it? To atone for sin, Jesus had to be sacrificed outside the camp, which is why he is led out of the city to be crucified. Look again at Mark 15, verse 25. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. Jesus died a Roman death. This too fulfills tons of prophecy. Zechariah 12, Psalm 22. It's prophesied that the Messiah will have both his hands and his feet pierced. Again, books written hundreds of years before the cross. Look at Matthew 15, 27. And they crucified him and with him they crucified two robbers one on his right and one on his left jesus was crucified with two criminals one on either side of him and though on the one hand that's terribly unjust it fulfills scripture as well remember one of them trust in christ alone for salvation though that's in luke's account we're going to talk about that in just a moment but this is a direct fulfillment of Isaiah 53, verse 12. Listen to what Isaiah says. He says, He was numbered with the transgressors, with the wicked, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession. He accomplishes salvation for the transgressors. So here, Isaiah is prophesying that the Messiah will die a criminal's death for the sake of criminals. And guess what? There's more. We're not done. We just read that the garments were divided up and they cast lots for them. Another direct fulfillment of Scripture. I mean, how much more do people need, right? Look at Psalm 22 up on the screen, beginning in verse 16. 
For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Now, now let me ask you this. How do these men know to do this? Did, did they think, oh, wow, there's a prophecy in Psalm 22, so if this is the Messiah, we better do this so that the, this prophecy is fulfilled, right? Surely you don't believe that. They, they probably knew nothing about this passage of Scripture. They had no idea. Their actions were fulfilling prophecy from hundreds of years back. But do you know who did? God knew. And notice, he is making moves through this to fulfill his word. Yet in no sense is there any guilt removed from these men. They are completely responsible. Though God is sovereign, man is responsible. So you have this group of wicked, callous, godless soldiers carrying out these wicked and evil acts of gambling for Christ's garments as he suffers and dies on the cross, yet... As they are carrying out this wicked plan, they are fulfilling prophecy letter by letter. Wow! That should blow your hair back a little bit. So you ask, where is God in all this? He's behind it all. These events happen in accordance to the divine, sovereign plan and design of God. Though wicked men carried out these horrible acts and they're responsible for their wickedness, God is working in and through these events to accomplish our salvation in accordance with His Word through His Son. Look at what Peter tells us about it in Acts chapter 2, verse 23. Look at this up on the screen. He tells the religious leaders, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. There you have it right there. God's sovereignty and man's responsibility all rolled up in this one verse. So there's a lot to be learned from the Savior's suffering, right? There's also a lot to be learned from Pilate's sarcasm. That's the next point. Look at verse 26. In the inscription of the charge against him read the king of the Jews. And this day, when one was crucified, they were marched through the streets out of the city to the place where they were to be executed. In front of them was a man who was assigned to carry a sign. And displayed on that sign, written on that sign, was the offense of whoever was being crucified. And it was to be displayed up on the cross. For example, if you were a thief, your placard read, Thief. Right. Yeah. But... We know Jesus committed no crimes, right? We, we learned toward the end of Mark 14 that the religious leaders, they, they had false witnesses making false accusations against Jesus so that he would be put to death. Pilate is clear. He found no fault in Jesus, right? He says in Mark 15, 14, what evil has he done? He says in Luke 23, 4, I find no guilt in this man. And we, we learn in John's account that because he thought he was innocent and also because he wanted to get back at the Jews, I believe, for, for blackmailing him and backing him into this corner, having him send away a man who is innocent to be crucified, I believe Pilate takes the opportunity here to take a shot at them. 
Sure, he loathed these Jewish religious leaders for a number of reasons, but one, for what they had forced him to do. So he takes revenge against them, and he has written on Jesus' placard, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Now, notice Mark just tells us the placard reads, King of the Jews. John gives us more detail. These are not conflicting accounts. Mark simply focuses in on that last important statement. John gives us a bit more. Now, I don't know this for sure, but my guess is Pilate loved every minute of that. This was his one chance to get back at them. So he, he fires back at them with this cynical and, and sarcastic insult toward them, and it landed. It had the desired effect. This got all over the Jews for, for a number of reasons. One, because the sign said, Jesus of Nazareth. You heard me say before, Nazareth in this day, it was hick town. It was the radiator springs of the Middle East for you Cars fans. That's what it was. Remember what Nathaniel said about it? When he found out Jesus was from Nazareth, he said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? You ever said that about a town? When you heard somebody's from there, don't mention it out loud. But you know, that's kind of what he's saying. Those from the prestigious city of Jerusalem, they snubbed their noses at people from Nazareth. So to think that the Messiah was from there, that was preposterous to them. They didn't like that one bit. That was offensive to them, but even more troublesome was the statement, King of the Jews. Now why did this bother them? Well, think about where Jesus is. He's on the cross and Pilate is saying very sarcastically and jokingly, here is the king. Behold, the king of the Jews. Think about that. If this was their king, which he was, what does that say about them? So because they had questioned Pilate's loyalty to Rome and to Caesar and knocked him down a few pegs, he thought he would return the favor by mocking them and humiliating them by labeling this man who is crucified with criminals as their king. And Pilate goes out of his way to make sure everybody gets the message. John tells us in John 19, 20, it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. Aramaic was the language of the Jews. Latin was the language of the Romans. And Greek was the language of most every common person in the known world at that time. So he wants to make sure everybody walking by can see it and get the message, be able to read it. And again, the Jewish religious leaders, they didn't like this one bit. They try their hardest to get Pilate to change it. They say in John 19, 21, don't write that. Don't write that Jesus is the king of the Jews, but rather this man said I am king of the Jews. Now that would change things, right? Because one says that he is, the other says he's an imposter. He's, he's a fake. He's making a false claim, which is why he's on this cross. But Pilate finally gets a backbone in the story. And he responds by saying in John 19, 22, what I have written, I have written. What I have done, I've done, and there's no changing it. This was devastating to the Jewish people's pride. This ate them up inside to see this man whom they viewed as being a wicked blasphemer being publicly declared as their king. But here's the ironic thing about it. You ready? Though Pilate was being cynical and sarcastic, this message that he declares at Calvary about Christ was absolutely true. It was true. The Jews had, in fact, crucified their king. 
He was exactly right. Think about it. Written on that placard in Aramaic and Latin and Greek was the gospel. Because at the heart of the gospel, you have a crucified king. So though Pilate wanted to strike back at the Jews, he ends up declaring the gospel from the cross. Folks, God is at work here. Do you see that? I pray you do. Remember, we've said this before. Godless rulers, wicked religious leaders are mere pawns in the hand and in the plans of God. We see that here. In the acts surrounding Jesus' arrest, crucifixion, God once again is fulfilling His will, His word, letter by letter. And we also see here that Pilate's sarcasm is used by God to be an instrument to spread his gospel. We're going to see in a moment that this crucified king and, and what was said about him and his actions, it makes a huge impression on certain people near the cross and on the cross who are looking toward him. So we have looked at the Savior's suffering, Pilate's Sarcasm. We have clearly seen, right? God at work in both of those things. He's at work in it all. Notice one last thing, the mocking participants. Look at verse 27. And with them they crucified two robbers, one on his right, one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. We're also told those, now notice that's plural, okay? Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. So both were reviling him for a time. We see here Christ is, is mocked by those who pass by, by the religious leaders, and by the criminals who are being crucified on either side of him. Those who passed by were told they derided him. That is the Greek word blasphemeo. What do you think that word is? Blasphemed, right? They blasphemed him. They defamed him. They reviled him. They shook their heads at him. They pinned his words against him, saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross. Well, notice first, they're misquoting Jesus. We always see the enemies at work when God's words are misused, right? When his words are twisted and used against him, we know that the enemy is at work. Jesus didn't say he was going to destroy the temple, did he? He said, you destroy the temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. That's his words. That's from John 2, 19. And remember, we're told by John that Jesus is talking about his body, right? When he talks about the temple, he's talking about his death and resurrection. And it was because of that work that Christ did not save himself and did not come down off the cross. He remained on the cross in order to save us. That's the gospel right there in a nutshell. Get this. Christ did not save himself so that he could save us. He did not come down from the cross to save us from the cross. He died so that we might live. We're also told, surprise, surprise, that the religious leaders mocked Jesus as well. Look at verse 31 again. 
The chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. But we learn from the gospel message that it was not that Christ could not save himself. Get this. It is that he did not save himself so that he could save others. That is the gospel right there. He knew he was going to the cross. He always talked about going to the cross. His sights were set on the cross. And he knew he was not coming down alive. And the reason why is because he was sent to provide rescue for sinners. They're mocking him. Get this. They're mocking him saying some kind of savior Jesus is. He can't even save himself. The gospel response to that sarcastic statement is the fact that he did not save himself shows how great of a savior he is. He died so that we might live. What a Savior. Notice what else they said. They said, let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. And we know that would never happen, even if it did. They were around Christ all the time. We know that He's taken down from the cross, put into a tomb, rose on the third day. And when soldiers tell the religious leaders what happened, they tell them that, that an angel came down, the stone was rolled away. We're told in Matthew's account that they bribed them to conjure up a story that someone took the body while they were sleeping, which always floors me. How, in the, how on earth did they know that someone took the body if they were sleeping? You know? It doesn't make any sense. Do you know anything that's happening when you're sleeping? Sometimes we have little kids at the foot of our bed, and we don't know it, you know, until they crawl up next to us. No matter what they witnessed, no matter what was told them, they were committed to their unbelief. Notice also that not only did the passers-by and the religious leaders mock Jesus, but so did the criminals he was put beside. We're told those who were crucified with him also reviled him. They were in on the joke, which is amazing. They're dying on the cross, yet they take time to mock Jesus. But as many of you know, through reading the other accounts, Jesus responds in love and with mercy toward his persecutors. He prays for their rescue. He prays for their forgiveness. We're told in Luke 23, 34, and Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He prays for the Father to pour His mercy and His grace out toward His persecutors. And in the other accounts we learn, God answers the prayers of His Son. One of those thieves' eyes are open to who Jesus is, and He cries out to Him in faith, and He is saved right then and there, right before He exits this life. Wonderful story, one of my favorites. He moves from ridicule to worship, from mocking rejection to saving faith. In Luke 23, 42, he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He acknowledges the lordship of Christ is written right there on his placard, right? King of the Jews. He says, remember me when you enter into your kingdom. He acknowledges Christ as the true king of heaven. And Jesus says to him, just in the nick of time, truly I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. We're also told that a Roman centurion looks on Jesus at the foot of the cross, Calvary, and believes. Matthew 27, 54, we're told, 
When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly this was the Son of God. And then later in Acts 6-7, after the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Christ, we're told, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. God answered that prayer that Christ prayed on the cross at Calvary, did he not? And that provides an answer for us that we ask at the very beginning of this sermon. Why did God not act? What was he doing as his son is being betrayed and arrested and denied and tried and beaten and mocked and hung between criminals on a cursed cross? He's accomplishing our great, our great salvation, right? He's accomplishing that work. That's why Christ died. That's why it pleased the Father to crush His Son, as it says in Isaiah, so that sinners set against Him like those scattered around the cross at Christ's crucifixion and the one hanging next to Him. And us, believers, could be rescued from sin and death and restored to God through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. In this Easter story recorded in these four Gospels, we see two responses to the great work of salvation that Christ accomplished at Calvary. We see rejection and unbelief, and we see repentance and faith. What's going to be your response today? You've heard the message. You've heard the meaning of the cross. What say you? Maybe, maybe you're here today, and you've been impacted by what's being said here, what God says in His Word. What will your response be? I urge you today, I plead with you today to respond like the thief at Calvary, the centurion at the foot of the cross. Turn from your sin. Give your life up and over to Jesus today. Look to Him, believe on Him, place your faith and trust alone in His person and work alone for salvation and be saved today. Let's pray.